0: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest tonight is the writer whose novels inspired HBO's Game of Thrones and its new prequel series, House of the Dragon. His latest book, The Rise of the Dragon, an illustrated history of the Targaryen dynasty, Volume 1 came out today. Please welcome back to The Late Show, George R.R. Martin. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Well, it's good to be back. Last time you were here, you were uh, were here to talk about fire and blood. Right. Okay, that was Volume 1 of... uh, I'm still working on Volume 2. Of this (laughs) uh, that inspires House of the Dragon. Now... You're here with, ooh, you make them big. Yes. Rise of the Dragon. Okay, what am I getting in Rise of the Dragon that I didn't get in Fire and Blood?
0: Well, uh, uh, Fire and Blood's about 300,000 words of Targaryen history. This one is about a quarter that length in terms of words. But we have added 150 original illustrations by some of the finest people fantasy artists in, in the world, from all over the world. So.
1: Here's one of the examples. Here's, here's an example of one. And I was not aware of this, is that we all have an image in our head of the, the Iron Throne from the series on HBO, right. The Game of Thrones. This is an illustration of how you imagine the, 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 the Iron Throne actually looking. That's what it's supposed to look like.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, it looks a little dangerous.
0: It is. It is supposed to be. A lot of the kings uh, cut themselves on it, and then sometimes it gets infected. So it's probably good you don't have an iron seat there.
1: Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd have to make it out of all the other chairs of the late-night hosts. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. That's good.
0: Now, the original Iron Throne uh, in in the books is... uh, you know very tall and and uh the king sits up there he's like 10 15 feet above everybody looking down on the people mm-hmm. and it's it was made by like blacksmiths it's not pretty it's not symmetrical mm. it's full of hundreds and hundreds of swords uh but when we actually got to making game of thrones well we we didn't have a a sound stage with a you know tall enough ceiling in sure. order to uh, fit it in there. So uh, they made the one that has become, uh, you know, kind of iconic mm-hmm. for Game of Thrones. But when we made the new show, we had a little more room and we were able to expand it. And uh...
1: hey, you also have a little bit more money, much more money at the beginning of this show than the beginning of the last show did when all that was established. Yes. And, and some of the money has gone into uh, your, your, you know, your, your creations uh, the here. The dragons, yes. The dragons. Instead of having three dragons, how many you got now?
0: Well, it depends on when you count, but, uh, yeah, roughly 17 <laughs> to 20 at various points because uh, some of them die and new ones are born, and the first season takes place, uh, you know, over about 20 years or so.
1: And what was, your, what was important to you about the creation of, of these dragons visually? Well, I wanted,
0: I wanted the dragons to be uh, characters, to have, uh, you know, a stronger personality and to look different from each other. So when you saw one... Immediately on the screen, you you knew that. Well, that that is uh, Vagar. That is Caraxes. Okay, that is Sea Smoke.
1: That's Caraxes. Yeah. There's Caraxes. He, look, he looks a little mean. This guy's more of a, a sweetie. <laughs> Cyrax seems more like a. Cyrax. That's, uh, yeah,
0: that's yeah. That's Rhaenyra's dragon. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, each uh, each dragon should have a different personality. I, I like them to be more colorful too than the, than the first show. If you've ever looked at uh, real life uh, reptiles. Lizards, mm-hmm. snakes. That, yeah. Some of them are very brightly colored. They have all sorts of bands and mm-hmm. stunning colors. But uh, so uh, we wanted to
1: capture a little of that, and and we have. Legally, legally, I have to ask you how things are going with Winds of Winter. <laughs> well, that's a legal, get, uh, <laughs> me, a legal requirement for me. A legal part of me. You're not legally required, but I, I have a contract that says I have to ask George R. R. Martin those when he comes. Well, on. I
0: we I am making progress with. Uh, um, with the Winds of Winter, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still not done yet, but I, I have... Um, how much know,
1: are we talking? How, how far are you we
0: Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's going to be a very big book. I, you know, the biggest books so far were um, the third volume, Storm of Swords, and the fifth yep. volume, Dance with Dragons. Those, those were both about 1,500 pages of manuscript. Yep. This one's going to be bigger than either of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm about three-quarters of the way done. I'm done with some of the characters. You know, they, they're all, they all, the characters all interweave. Sure, sure, so sure. So I've actually finished with a couple of the characters. I got their whole story, but yes. not others. So uh, okay. I, have to, I have to finish all that weaving, but it's still going to take me a while. And- so 10 years to go 75% of the way through <laughs> means yeah, that, 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 that about... That's depressing, that's depressing. <laughs> yes. Okay, all right, so three more years. And I do know one thing for certain that, uh, you know, when we're going to deliver it and it's going to be published and the next day I will get the first tweet that says, where's the dream of spring? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but... It will be from me. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanted to ask you about um, Elden Ring. Okay, it's oh, a very, okay. Very, very popular video game. What did you actually do to create that cosmology? Well, it was... Uh... It was actually a number of years ago now. It, mm-hmm. You know, video <laughs>
0: video games, which I didn't know, um, actually take us long to make as like a major motion picture, uh, if not longer. They intensive development. But basically, the people from, from software, mm-hmm. uh, the makers of Elden Ring, contacted me a, a number of years ago, and they wanted to do this video game, and they wanted a, a world built. They wanted the world building, which I'm, um, you know, uh been doing for quite a while and i and i like doing it but they made it clear that elden ring was going to take place in uh let's say the present of their game universe Mm -hmm. but what they wanted me to write was what happened like uh, five thousand years before that that totally screwed up the world so that the present was really messed up so i i went back and wrote uh you know a history of uh what happened five thousand years before the current game, and who all the characters were, and who was killing each other, and what powers they had. You know, they they had these these runes that were the center of the game, and and the rune got split into many many pieces and runes, and that's what screwed up the world. So Do you, I you laid all it? that out. Have you played it? I I have not played it because people seem to want this Winds of Winter book, and <laughs> I have a. I HAVE UNFORTUNATELY uh, A TOTALLY ADDICTIVE PERSONALITY. I, I, I DID PLAY VIDEO GAME A LONG, LONG TIME AGO. I PLAYED GAMES LIKE uh, RAILROAD TYCOON AND <laughs> MASTER OF ORION AND HOMEWORLD AND I WOULD wow. GET SUCKED INTO IT AND I, uh, WEEKS, MONTHS WOULD GO BY AND I WOULD BE SITTING there IN MY RED FLANNEL BATHROBE JUST PLAYING ONE MORE GAME, ONE MORE GAME AND uh, I, I CAN'T. I GOT TO GO COLD TURKEY ON THIS. THIS IS GOING TO KILL ME HERE. <laughs> But it was it was fun, and the the Japanese team who put together the game it's the most beautiful game I've ever seen. It's mm-hmm. it's really uh, amazing and amazingly detailed, and the people who uh, uh, play it love it, and I'm very gratified to have been a part of it.
1: Do you still do you still read fantasy and science fiction yourself? Like do you do you read I, other people's works and new things? I, I do, you know. I mean.
0: I'm pretty much sent by every publisher, every high fantasy that comes out, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the possibility of blurbing. And I I do try to look at them, and I Mm -hmm. read some of them, and I blurb them when I can. Um, And I also read other things. I've always been um, someone who likes not only fantasy, but also science fiction, which is what I really Mm -hmm. started with back in the 70s, and and other genres, mystery
1: novels, uh, historical... I love history Mm -hmm. and historical fiction. Who were like some of the contemporaries who were writing science fiction? Did like uh, Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, any of those guys from the '70s? Well, cool. Jerry
0: unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but I, I certainly read his books and his mm-hmm. collaboration with Larry mm-hmm. from uh, from the old days. Mm-hmm. There are some really, really good writers uh, writing science fiction, fantasy these days. There's Nnedi uh, uh, Okorafor. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got a um, amazing. Book called "Who Fears Death" that uh, I'm helping to develop for mm-hmm. HBO, possible uh, mm-hmm. series based on uh, Nettie's work. Um, Daniel Abraham, who writes fantasy under his own name, and is half of James S. A. Corey, who did The Expanse with mm. Ty FRANK. So that's a that's a space opera kind of thing, but mm-hmm. a, a mind blowing one. Great,
1: great TV series too. They did a really good job adapting it. There's a recent piece in the Washington Post pointed out that in the current fantasy and science fiction adaptations that we see on TV, it, it focuses with uh, on downfall and decline. And, A, why do you think that is... And because the science fiction, certainly, that I grew up with, sort of the golden age and even silver age science fiction, was all sort of a, out of the Enlightenment, about the idea of the perfectibility of mankind or the expandability of humankind. Yeah and, yeah. and now there's a lot of, you know, dystopia, or there has been for about 30 years now, a lot of dystopia and decline. A, why do you think that is? And, and B, are you an optimist and a pessimist in, in your work? Well, I, I, I mean,
0: <laughs> this is a serious subject, but I think... Lately, I'm becoming more and more pessimistic. Um, yeah, I grew up on, on uh, you know golden age science fiction, and then the science fiction of the '60s and '70s. Uh, there was uh, every writer had his own background, his own world building, or in many cases, many world building. I, I called my future history the the thousand worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and Asimov had the Foundation. Uh, Robert A. Heinlein had Future History. Larry Niven had Known, known Space. space. Yeah but they all had a kind of similar template to it a a consensus future history which is that mankind would number one we would get together and form some sort of global government and Mm -hmm. put an end to war sometimes it was after a nuclear holocaust but then eventually we'd learn a lesson and then we would go to the solar system first we would go to the moon we would make um, colonies on mars uh, then somehow we would perfect a way to get to the stars. And they, they you know, how? Because we, we knew, we were science writers. We knew about the Einstein theory of relativity. Can't just step on the accelerator. So we invented, oh, hyperspace, uh, warp drive. Yeah, black mm-hmm. holes. Yeah, that's how we'll get there. But we'll get to the stars. We'll form the galactic empire. We'll have colonies. The human race will go on forever. We will go to the stars, our culture, our history. Um, and and obviously these were novels, so there was conflict, there were wars, there were really weird-ass societies where they had strange customs, but there was a fundamental optimism to it. Um, and I certainly shared that, I, I think I look back on it, it was almost religious faith. I mean, I remember I was 21 years old when, uh, we landed on the moon. And I, they had science fiction writers commentating on that next to Walter Cronkite and David Brinkley and all that.
1: Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke.
0: Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Robert E. Heinlein. And I think it was Heinlein who said, we should, you know, stop with a Before Christ and Anno Domino, and we should, this is the year one of the human race and the new space age. This is the most important event in the history of mankind uh, that we have gone to the moon. And I, I believe that. I believe that, and I even before that happened, reading books in the 50s, I always knew that we would, I had the faith that we would go to the moon, and we would go to Mars, and we would eventually, maybe it'd take 500 years, but we would get to the stars. Um, what I never saw coming is that we would go to the moon, and then we would stop going to the moon. <laughs> and we would, ah, oh, the moon, boring place, just rocks. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll stay at home, and we wouldn't go to Mars at all, and we would sort of abandon the space program. And now I I look at (sighs) the world we're living in. I'm sorry, this is worse than Westeros here, but (laughs) there were a lot of works back in the 50s, too, that uh, were dystopias, and frequently they were after a nuclear war. We were very worried about nuclear war in in the 50s and 60s, and then we sort of stopped worrying about it, and we started worrying about the zombie apocalypse instead. Mm. Uh, but suddenly, nuclear war seems more and more feasible again. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's back there. We may have a nuclear war, and we have new pandemic diseases that are wiping us out. There were a lot of science fiction books about that, too. But, you know, even in some of those old books, um, if there was a nuclear war and there were radioactive mutants roaming the landscape and horrible things, there would always be some... Some good people who would get together and they would reinvent civilization. Optimism was still there, even if the setting was terrible. Is it still there? I mean, can we be optimistic about climate change? Can we be optimistic about what are we going to do if Putin actually does use nuclear bombs? What do we want to do? I wish I had a dragon I could fly
1: to the Kremlin, but. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't. Well, you said <laughs> just a moment ago. You said that this was, in, in a way, like science fiction is in some way, your faith, not a religious yeah. faith, but a faith in, in that vision of the future. Are you having a crisis of faith? I, I think I am, yeah. I don't, I don't know. You know, I do still think maybe
0: it won't be Americans or, you know, maybe it'll be 300 years from now after our nuclear war or pandemic exchange, but I do think we will eventually go back to the moon and we will go to Mars and we will go to some of the moons of Jupiter... The stars are looking harder and harder. The distances are so great. I don't believe in warp drives. I don't believe in
1: hyperspace. I what don't... about the Starshot mission, which is very small probes on solar sails boosted by space based lasers to go to Proxima Centauri, which is a, a brown dwarf that has an Earth sized moon and possibly has water on it. I mean, I think they should launch it immediately because if they go to a quarter of the speed of light, it's four light years. It'll take 16 years to get there, and then it'll take four years for the information to get back from the probes at the speed of light. In 20 years, we could know what that planet is like. We've got to do it right yes. now. <laughs> yes! Let's get together. <laughs> Are sure. you going to launch to GoFundMe? Sure. <laughs> Rise of the Dragon is on sale now. This has been The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. The Late Show will be back from fall break on October 24th with all new episodes. If you're enjoying The Late Show Pod Show, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For more exclusive Late Show content, Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube.
0: about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts.